Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. I am Greg Hargreaves, Program Officer in the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, you know, during these History Hangouts, we like to bring you some of the great research being done by folks who have used the historical collections at the Hagley Library, especially researchers who have received funding support, grants, fellowships from the Hagley Center. One such scholar joining me today is David Correa, Professor of American Studies at the University of New Mexico, and we'll be discussing his book project titled Set the Earth on Fire. And it is a history of the dramatic coal strike of 1902, in which 150,000 miners went on strike for five months. David, thanks for speaking with me today. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Let's start uh, sort of speaking in general terms. What is it that you're researching and writing about? Well, you know, I, I started out um, interested really in the role of um, the notorious coal and iron police in Pennsylvania in the um, late 1800s and early 1900s. And I was interested in the role of, of um, strike breaking um, in the history of Pennsylvania in particular, but beyond and, and coal fields in Virginia and West Virginia and, and Kentucky. Um, state governments relied on militias, national guards and private police to, to force miners who went out on strike back into the mines. And, um, you know, Pennsylvania had this, what uh, I think before I got into the archives, this seemingly unique um, uh, coal and iron police. And so when I got into the archives, uh, initially in Pennsylvania, um, I found a really a much different story than I expected to find. It's just really remarkable story, particularly around anthracite mining and the development of hard rock mining in eastern Pennsylvania. And maybe the viewers aren't familiar with this, and I wasn't when I started, but there's really a difference between the sort of bituminous or soft coal really everywhere else in the United States in the 18th and 19th century. And this unique hard coal or stone coal, it was called in Pennsylvania, it burned cleaner, provided, didn't produce any smoke or soot and became the most dominant domestic fuel along the entire Eastern seaboard, replaced um, other, re replaced wood and later coal, soft coal in like every, steam engine and you know and every um stove and warmed every home and hearth up and down the eastern seaboard it was among the most at the time it was the most important fuel in the united states and when those miners went out on strike in 1902 it threatened not just domestic heating sources but entire industries that completely relied on it and and so the story that I, I'm interested in telling is one not so much specifically about the role of, of police and enforcing miners back to work and strike breaking, but rather the role that this particular kind of coal and the efforts of coal miners in Eastern Pennsylvania to control the industry, which they up to that point, they, they were really what they considered wage slaves making a dollar a day. Um, wage is no different from 80 years earlier. Um, 1902. And so this was a, a really dramatic strike that um, that took five months to resolve, at the time considered the most important labor contract uh, conflict in the history of, of, of labor, um, and to some degree largely forgotten, um, considered a, a minor victory for labor uh, when they came, came back from a, an arbitrated settlement um, brokered by Teddy Roosevelt. Um, but what I've found in the archives is a much more dramatic story. 
um, uh, about waves of Eastern European immigration to Eastern mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, the first efforts to organize uh, across ethnicities um, and regions, um, and and provides, I think, an, an interesting history and not just the development of um, labor unions in the U.S. and not just the development of, of fossil fuel, um, but also in, in police because it challenged the ability of, of industry and the state uh, to control what they considered unruly workers refusing to submit to the logic of capital. Mm. And, um, the, uh, and I actually came to the Hagley because of this incredible archives related to, um, you know, not just um, business, uh, all the many of the coal um, carrying railroads have the records at the Hagley, which was really remarkable. They were they were uh, they controlled the entire trade. J.P. Morgan at the at the head of that, um, but also just the engineers innovating with the uses of stone coal. Um, Dupont, in fact, made most of the black powder that miners used in the mines to to dig. And so there's this sort of really fascinating interconnected set of relationships between different industries and coal mining and the miners there. Um, and that story, I don't think, has yet really fully been told. And that's what I'm trying to do. I see. Well, perhaps could you sort of set up the context for us? What was the state of relations between labor and capital uh, right at the beginning of the 20th century? That's a hard one to do in, in a short amount of time. I mean, I, 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 um, I'm actually, I've been working on, uh, I'm at the stage of, 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 of drafting the, the first chapters. And so, um, you know, this, I think this is often told in histories of, of this period and this industry or these struggles by workers and capital. Um, it's often told as a, a kind of a, develop, a developmentalist story about this slow um, shift toward um, domestic fuel after the War of 1812 and the rise of anthracite in the middle part of the 19th century and, and the constant conflicts, often violent between um, the, the coal operators and, and, and labor, the mine workers. And, and it's a fascinating story, but I, what, I, what I think it's most useful to do is really try to understand what is it about the mining of hard coal mm -hmm that made conflict between mine workers and coal operators, and later the railroads that control those coal mines, so intractable, so contentious. And so um, I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how it was done, how they actually mine the coal. Mm -hmm. And what I, what I learned was just, we're talking about maybe one of the most dangerous occupations that anyone could ever engage in. Mm -hmm. um, constantly um, imagined as something other than dangerous by the coal operators, um, and also so fully con controlled, every facet of, of production controlled by um, the wealthiest people in Eastern Pennsylvania and beyond, um, that these were the, the lowest paid workers in the United States, considered unskilled, even though this was a, a skillful job to be a coal miner. Um, and so the, the, the conflicts were always life or death. And, uh, and, you know, in fact, I think some of the most um, notorious examples in our history of, of capital's oppression of workers happened in the coal fields. Um, the, the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad president's use of the Pinkerton detectives to investigate the Molly Maguires, um, uh, nearly two dozen of whom are hanged to death 
for basically being members of a of a, an Irish benevolent society, no different than any of the other dozens of secret societies throughout this region at the time, um, all in, a, in, a, in an attempt to sort of secure control of this trade and this industry. So by 1902, uh, you know, mine workers recognized that um, there was nothing they could do to um, confront these coal operators individually. Uh, the, the, the way that the industry operated relied on different uh, methods and practices, depending on where you were in the anthracite coal fields. And it became impossible to create any sort of solidarity among all the workers. Workers in Schuylkill County would go out and strike and miners from the Wyoming Valley would take their place. There was no, you know, there was no solidarity. Um, and so it really becomes, I think in 1902, um, about at the tail end of what is a decade and a half of, of waves of Eastern European um, migration to Eastern Pennsylvania, who they called the Slavs, but we're talking about Lithuanians, Polish, Russians, what today would be Ukrainians, um, flooding into Eastern Pennsylvania and taking up the lowest paid jobs, doing the most dangerous work. Mm -hmm. And this transformed the prospects of the United Mine Workers Union, which suddenly um, emerged as the only logical source to control these mine workers. This is really the invention of business unionism. Like the mine, mm -hmm. the mine, these very conservative mine, mine um, union leaders pitch themselves to capital as partners. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you may not be able to control these mine workers, but we can, and we can order them back to work. But in return, we want contracts that guarantee us minimum wages and certain protections for workers. Mm -hmm. And so the 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 strike of 1902 is important um, as an example of early efforts to build the kinds of unions we recognize today that, that care strictly about wages and working conditions and, 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 and don't confront or challenge the logic of capital, but really try to carve out a place for workers within it versus this unruly workforce of 150,000 miners, 70,000 of whom don't speak English, don't really care at all about the, the concerns and claims of the mine worker leaders um, are working the hardest, most dangerous jobs for the lowest wages, living in um, shanties, 15 to a room, just to be able to send money home and recognize when they go out on strike that their lives um, are at stake mm -hmm. and, uh, and engage in some of the most dramatic and confrontational clashes with the coal and iron police, the National Guard, the militia, even with their own mine, mine union leaders in a strike that... Um, from a distance appears to be a victory for, for the union. But I think in the, in, in the way that I intend to tell the story, which is, a, which is focusing really on the regular miners, the rank and file, the people that worked underground, this was an ambiguous victory that, um, that didn't actually result in, in any meaningful gains to their, mm -hmm. to their livelihoods, um, to, to protecting them in the mines. Um, it was an ambiguity that's kind of gets baked in to labor management relations thereafter. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and that's the story I'm, I'm really most interested in telling, like this pivotal moment, you know, in which um, the, the way in which coal operators um, to that time imposed order, industrial order is breaking down. The coal and iron police mm -hmm. can't do it anymore. Public opinion swings toward the mine workers. Um, they see this sort of notorious coal and iron police and all their violence as, um, as a kind of like, uh, as a kind of aberration from this view of Americans as being progressive. Um, 
And the mine workers use that, to, you know, in the struggle against the, the, the coal operators and, and to build a different kind of a union. But meanwhile, the, 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 the coal operators are trying to build a different kind of police. Hmm. They're, they're trying to figure out a way to impose a specific kind of industrial order that stabilizes production. That's, that's really what this strike is about. How do we produce a stable version of industrial production? The coal operators wanted to produce one that served their interests, and the mine workers wanted to produce one that served their interests. Mm -hmm. that, that's what the struggle was. And ultimately, the coal operators and the industrialists win that, that fight. Um, but that's, that's only a story that can be told by really getting inside the mines and really figuring out how it was that coal, the coal miners organized, mm -hmm. how they organized their work, how they organized the unions and how they confronted capital and these coal operators. And, and that, that's the story that I'm interested in. It's a much more sort of like fine grained story that I don't think has been told. Um, I'm not really interested in what Teddy Roosevelt did. I'm not really interested in what like JP Morgan did. I'm interested in what miners whose names no one could pronounce it even, they just stopped trying to pronounce them, what they did. Mm. And, um, and so, you know, th th this is a really sort of like fine grained story that relies uh, on, on archives that remarkably tell those stories in the voices of those miners. Well, could you put our feet down in the anthracite coal country amongst these people and perhaps uh, illustrate how they're organizing both both their work lives and then their uh, strike against working conditions? Yeah, I, I, I there's so many stories to tell that, to, to illustrate that. I'll try to pick a few. Um, okay, great. First of all, the, 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 the structure of the industry was unusual in that... Um, there was a kind of two-tiered employment structure in the anthracite mines where there would be a, a, a certified miner considered a, a contract miner. And, um, and then there would be uh, laborers, mine laborers. And, and the contract miners were considered employees of the coal companies, although they, they, uh, the, the way that wages were paid um, depended on the, the, the geology of the coal, in fact. Hmm. Um, the, the unique thing about anthracite is it's, it's a, a, a higher carbon content kind of coal than, than bituminous that, that forms through geological processes um, that make it harder, but also make the seams um, uh, variable. Like some seams are, are, are perpendicular to the ground underground. Some are, 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 are you know, parallel to the, to the surface of the earth. And as a result, the, the methods become very much different. Hmm. And so th these differences in methods result in differences in the way that miners are paid. Some Coal miners pay them by the pound. Some pay, pay them by the number of cars they load. Uh, some pay them by the linear foot they drive a scene. Mm -hmm. and, and so when complaints arise in one region, those complaints don't resonate with the miners in another region, which makes it really difficult to, mm -hmm. to organize some sort of, you know, uh, a union that, that rec represents all mine workers. In addition, um, the contract miners pay the, laborers. So the, the laborers see the contract miners as their boss, mm -hmm. not the coal operators. And there were plenty of contract miners who grew as large as some of the coal operators. And, and really th this sort of like the difference between the, the interests in coal miners, certified miners, and the interest in laborers created another sort of organizing difficulty for miners. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, and most of the laborers in, in 1902 are from Eastern Europe, um, and the and the sort of state uh, law regarding certification, some historians uh, describe as as a tool to, 
to keep them there, mm -hmm. to keep them from being able to sort of advance into better paying jobs with more responsibility. And this, so this creates these problems too. And it didn't help that it was an incredibly dangerous job. I mean, you know, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of feet underground by themselves with hand tools, d drilling holes into rock, filling it with the black powder they would buy from DuPont, um, setting that, detonating that with squibs and hoping that doesn't kill them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and then hauling that out, um, shipped along, you know, pulled by mules along uh, underground track to, um, to engineers hoisting it up shafts or along slopes um, with all kinds of like the, the, the number of ways in which coal mine operators um, steal back the wages for miners is itself an entire book. Um, all, all the sort of small ways that, that it happens. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, it, and it, that's an impossible thing for miners to explain to a public who doesn't understand how production happens and doesn't see how these issues, like issues around like dockage or topping, words that mean nothing to someone who's not a coal miner, um, uh, mean in the context of their wages. Mm -hmm. But you know they they'd want to they had every every successful effort to raise their wages were responded to by coal operators through all kinds of ways to, to take it back, to steal it back from them. Mm -hmm. So um, so the sort of the, the miracle of the United Mine Workers is, is this ability suddenly in 1902 to unite an entire workforce, um, which before had never, they'd never been able to do. I mean, the, the, most, the most dues paying members the United Mine Workers had prior to 1902 was 5,000 around, maybe, maybe 10 or so in 1900. 147,000 dues-paying miners went out on strike in 1902. Um, United stayed out on strike for five months. Um, up until that time, coal operators like um, the notorious Franklin Gowan of the of the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad back in the 1870s, the one who um, sent the Molly Maguires to their deaths, went, uh, you know, he 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 would he would welcome strikes because he knew that. And he would say, we'll starve them back to the mines. And meanwhile, we'll make money from the, from the increase in prices and all the stocks we have in, in supply. And so it was, a, it was, but I think what's really interesting about the success of the mine workers is the role that uh, the non-English speaking miners played. Mm -hmm. It wasn't so much that they had any loyalty or solidarity with the union. They, they, they saw the world differently than, than the coal operators did, who were trying to bring into the world a kind of like progressive, modern, industrial society, one in which, by the way, union organizing constituted a threat. Um, th this is sort of the interesting thing that's difficult in sort of to our, our, our um, to the world we live in to understand, which is that just the fact of mine workers demanding to organize collectively to demand higher wages was conceived of, particularly in the late 1800s, as a form of terrorism because it threatened the industrial stability and therefore the progressive development of the US. Uh, it violated the laws of the market, which were being sort of elaborated at that time. And so it, it, it's really not until 1902 that um, mine workers organized openly, joined unions openly uh, without, without um, necessarily fear of being attacked as terrorists, although they, they, they still were. So, so this is a really sort of dramatic period in which the things we take for granted now are being 
built on the fly, like unions, um, like combinations of capital and labor um, are all being sort of worked out. And, and the, the, the role of the non-English speaking miners, which has uh, rarely been um, accounted for in histories of not just the 1902 strike, but even beyond, uh, are, are crucial. And so that's what I'm really most interested in. Is, is, and, and by the way, they lived in the worst places. Like these were mine patches, some in remote places, um, entirely owned by the coal companies. These are the familiar company towns that we've, we've, we've read of um, in which they were rented shanties for usually um, a few dollars a week. That There was no running water. Um, they had to scrounge for coal to heat their homes. Um, they lived off of uh, kitchen gardens and um, many of them described uh, spending years making no money at all. Like their entire, all of their wages went toward the rent and the, co and the costs of supplies they were made to buy to do the mining and the food they would buy at the company store, which they were, were required to pay for. Um, they were trapped. These were, these were people trapped in, in jobs that they couldn't leave. Um, and, uh, and, but by the, when the Eastern European miners arrived, it, it sort of really interrupts this pattern. They're coming and going They're there. There's as many, hmm. There's there's as many waves of immigration to the U.S. from Eastern Europe as they are returning. Um, every time a strike would go, ten thousand would return to to Eastern Europe, only to return when the, when the strike ends. And so it this sort of 1902 is a really tumultuous period, not just because of the strike, and it, and it, I think it creates a sort of really interesting opportunity to understand the development of the world we we know now. Mm -hmm. Well, what is it about 1902, this moment that um has the non-English speaking miners seeing their interest align with those of the union? Yeah, that's, that's the $64,000 question. I think um, partly uh, it has to do with the world these Eastern European miners found themselves in. I mean, many of them, most of them, I won't, I won't say all of them, but most of them um, were peasants fleeing conscription mm -hmm. In Eastern Europe, they're fleeing from conscription into German or Russian armies, or um, or fleeing from land reforms designed to throw them off of of already uh, shrinking land holdings, uh, coming coming to coming to the U.S. Um, to work in the coal mines. Not not a, the, the ones who came to the U.S. Uh, or, or came to the you know North America permanently often would just you know would settle in uh, Canada and, and you know on land and, and as farmers, but the ones who came just to make money to support, you know, the families back home, um, mm -hmm. worked in industrial jobs, um, coal mining among the most common that they would find. And, um, and were, were paid the, the, the least and worked the most dangerous jobs. Um, and, and could only survive in this and, but, and were just despised. And, and found a hostile world around them. I mean, walking mm -hmm. to the coal mine in the morning, being stoned by by English speaking children who who saw in them some sort of alien threat, um, denounced by newspapers, um, you know, um, e even by the by by union organizers who saw them as 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 a challenge to their ability to organize a unified workforce. Mm -hmm. um, they, you know, they found only their own people speaking their own language created their own churches, their own saloons, their own benevolent societies, their own building and loans um, um, institutions. Um, 
that was their that was the, the the world they found themselves landing in in Pennsylvania, and uh, it was life or death. I mean, if they if they didn't make a wage, there was nothing to fall back on. They couldn't leave the coal fields to go anywhere. They were trapped. They didn't have any any means to to move around to other jobs. There's this fascinating um, article I found in the archives. Uh, I think it's 1891. This is very early on. Um, in in the sort of like the beginning of the sort of migration to the to the east to the eastern Pennsylvania coal fields by by um, Eastern European miners, in which um, a local colliery the workers at a local colliery go out on strike and the coal operators um, bring in non-union workers to replace them, and on the first day that those workers are leaving um, the mine at the end of the day they walk out and find a thousand striking miners standing in front of them. Um, and at the front of that is just all women. And one holds up a sign in Polish tra that translates, kill the men who take food from our mouths. And then the, that entire crowd charges the non-union miners. I mean, it, it's hard to understand the kind of, um, the kind of world that they, they lived in. Um, it's easy to sort of condemn them as somehow inherently violent or not quite understanding the sort of the world they found themselves in, but they understood it perfectly well. If anyone took their job, they would starve to death. And so this was a life, life and death struggle. So, so in, in 1902, I think this, one of the ways that we can understand the success of the United Mine Workers is, um, is the promise their leaders made to those workers, particularly the the, the non-English speaking workers who they extensively uh, organized throughout Eastern Pennsylvania, that they wouldn't sell them out, that they weren't, you know, that they wouldn't go back on the work. John Mitchell, who was the young uh, president of the United Mine Workers, hated strikes. He was very conservative. Um, he wanted to, he wanted like uh, cooperative relationships with capital. He didn't want to, he didn't want a confrontational relationship. He worked with Republican senators to try to broker deals. But when all that failed, he stood by the mine workers and they went out on strike and refused to, to negotiate. So I, I think there was this moment in which um, even the non-English the non mine workers who didn't have any particular um, skin in the, the union organizing game at that time saw that their, their, their collective interests could only be advanced through this sort of confrontational strike with, with capital. And so... Because before that, I mean, it was it was, um, you know, the 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 you know the, which we usually you know prior to the Eastern European miners, it was English, Welsh, Irish miners. There was great suspicion of these, of these non-English speaking miners, um, which they saw as taking their jobs, coming from across the Atlantic and taking their jobs, and so it, it really took um, the struggles in 1900 and 1901 prior to the strike to create. What ended up being a, a moment um, of solidarity that, um, if not for um, the intransigence of so the coal operators, and that's a, another story, but you know that, that I'll, I'm focusing on the book, um, would have found much more success. So it, it, it's it, it's um, this this sort of this sort of moment in 1902 that that, that produces the solidarity and challenges an industrial order that had up to that point worked in a way that it no longer did is, is, is a really fascinating part of it. And, 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 and it is, I think it has everything to do with understanding the, the particular 
um, and unique interests of the Eastern European miners and how they get brought into the United Mine Workers. What is it that put Hagley on your radar and how were you using, how have you used Hagley collections to help uncover this story? Yeah, this is this is an interesting story for me. I mean, um, well, first of all, I mean, I, I think the most interesting things I've read about this strike and about anthracite coal mining are just littered with citations to collections at the Hagley. So before I, you know, I, before I even got there, I said, oh, I have to, I have to go to the Hagley. There's, there's so much important stuff. But in particular, um, I was fascinated by the role of black powder, um, the way that uh, the way that coal operators used black powder to control labor process in the mines. It's a mm -hmm. fascinating story, and I haven't really heard it told anywhere before, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do it justice because it's a complicated story. But after, and, it, and it's one of the reasons why the strike happens in 1902. In fact, I mean, in 1902, 1902 is when Pierre Dupont and um, and uh, other members, a small group of other members of the family um, create what Alfred Chandler calls the modern U.S. corporation. I mean, it transforms DuPont from a, a family enterprise into a, what we would recognize today as a modern corporation. And one of the uh, reasons they do that is because of all the competition, particularly in the um, coal fields for powder. They're just tired of competing with all these other fly-by-night powder operators, and they're tired of buying them out, and they're tired of um, engaging in what, by the way, every industry at the time engaged in, which is these secret underhanded sort of like deals and W corporations, constantly trying to disguise that they were the ones buying powder mills here or there, you know, um, recognizing the, the legal threat that that posed, Pierre DuPont um, transforms uh, the, the, the structure of the, of, of the company into something that more recognizable to us today. And, and one of the reasons to do this is to, is to, um, control price. They, they want to be able to control the price of powder so it's no longer unstable. They can rely on it, which and make it low enough that that they make a a, a a nice profit, but not high enough to attract competitors. That, that's the, the primary goal of Pierre Dupont. And so, the coal operators see in this an opportunity. Like in other words, they can now rely on a specific set price for a keg of powder, which is about a little over a dollar at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, and so they had always forced miners to buy from them, the coal operators, the powder that they would buy from DuPont. And they would mark it up often twice as much as what DuPont would send, sell it to the coal operators. So um, the strike of 1900, this is an issue. The miners are tired of paying for all these supplies and particularly these sort of like exorbitant prices they're charged at the company uh, stores for the things they need. I mean, it, it eats up, they buy everything. They have to buy the bits and the, for, the, for the drills and the powder and the squibs and you know everything. And so they come up with the idea to, to um, uh, only reduce the price of powder um, if the miners used a, a lesser amount of it in the course of their work. And so the, the price of powder then becomes a way to control the amount of powder that miners use, which is important because only the largest sizes of coal are most valuable. The smaller sizes are more difficult to market. There's less demand for them. It, it would take, it takes years before the, the real smallest like pebble size become even a marketable commodity. Hmm. And so this forces miners to use less powder in the mine, which um, no one would know unless they were a miner is a more dangerous way to mine. 
It, it, it creates more opportunities for collapses and rock falls. Um, it's it's much safer to use as much powder as is needed to pull coal off of a face of a seam and then shovel it into a car rather than what ends up happening, which is to carefully use powder in limited amounts um, so that the explosions produce large chunks, not, not just um, debris everywhere. And this, this fact alone uh, like inflames a lot of the, particularly the, the contract miners who are the ones using the, the, the powder. And, and this, is, this is not, I mean, this was not a strategy DuPont or any of the powder makers um, produced, but it, it, it just, in, in my view, when I, when I first was reading, and by the way, this was, I, I learned about this, like reading transcripts of miners talking about what they do and how they do it and complaining specifically about this thing. And it took forever for me to figure out what they were talking about because it was so, the language is so specific to what they're doing. I, I, you know, I've never, coal, I've never mined in a coal mine before. So it took a long, and when I finally realized it, I was just, it's fascinating how this sort of these industries interrelate, these sort of cascading effects of sort of this sort of efforts to like rethink and remake the corporation by DuPont cascades into the coal fields and transforms the labor process of men working underground in such a way that makes their lives, their, their work more dangerous and, and, and creates suddenly the conditions for organizing that didn't exist before, organizing against these changes, um, that 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 produces the kind of like solidarity that they had never been able to produce before. It's fascinating to me. So I, I spent a lot of time in in um, the Hagley um, on the records of the Gunpowder Powder Trade Association, which is um, which is basically the cartel that that um, you know most large industries operated in some sort of like cartel arrangement. Um, Often they were referred to as like combinations, the railroad combination, the anthracite combination. Um, in the case of powder, it was the powder trust, but the specific vehicle through which the powder trust expressed its, its political and economic power was called the Gunpowder Trade Association. And when I got into the archives at Hagley, I realized that the Gunpowder Trade Association, which is probably, I think, the, 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 the um, exemplar of cartel agreements in the U.S. at the time, in the, in the 1800s, Emerges specifically because of the challenges of selling powder to anthracite mining companies. So there's this really interesting close relationship that develops um, that that I, I need to understand in order to understand how this strike develops and resolves itself. And and Dupont is not like directly involved in any of this. It's just through the shifts in pricing. And and the and the shifts in the structure of the powder industry that provoke these changes in in coal that that help understand how this strike plays out. It's fascinating. So that I mean I and also there's you know a lot of the railroads who own coal roads have their uh, particularly the Reading Railroad um, with all of the amazing um, uh, longhand written reports from Pinkerton detectives on their investigations in the coal fields. It's just it's incredible. It gives you a real sort of, I mean, it, it, you have to take this with a grain of salt because these these infiltrators, you know, are not entirely trustworthy in terms of what they were saying about the people they were they were investigating. But, but nonetheless, it, it's like remarkable the the level of interest in just the everyday lives of the poorest people, <laughs> the poorest pe working people in the U.S. are seen by the most powerful corporations as their greatest threat. Mm. And, and the 1902 strike is the fullest expression of their fear. 
because they they finally organize in a way that terrifies them and um and so the resolution of the strike is 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 a way to um undercut that growing um labor militancy and solidarity well i'm on that note i'm wondering whether your work has implications for the present moment we have um a rather notable uh, wave of organizing and strikes going on, particularly in the service sector. Um, do you think your project here speaks to the present moment in some way? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I don't anticipate drawing any of those connections explicitly in the book, but I think they're all there in, implicitly. Um, one of them is, of course, climate change. I mean, I think the sort of struggles around around fossil fuels and climate change and 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 sort of tracing the development of the of anthracite as an industry is really revealing um, in many ways in terms about. Uh, a, a sort of a how did we get here kind of a story. Another, you know, is like police, right? Sort of the role of police in imposing order, um, and and generating what we might think of security, and 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 really the the police, um, you know, prior to the the strike, uh, policing is a really heterogeneous activity. It depends on where you are, and 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 the sort of structure of policing is different across the U.S. After 1902, um, it coalesces into a version of professionalized police that we would recognize now. And so this, this strike is, is really important in the development of, of police and policing, which I think is an important issue mm -hmm. now. And then lastly, I would suggest that, um, you know, the, the, um, the workers in the coal mine in 1902, who I think, you know, a lot of, um, I would guess, union organizers and, and people sort of interested in histories of labor venerate has these sort of like militant and radical workers are no different than the poorest wage workers today. Um, they were demonized then and they're demonized now. Uh, today they're they're dismissed as being, uh, you know, Trumpians. Um, they were dismissed then as, as threats to a progressive order that was just coming into being. And I, and I think the mistake that, um, that, progressives then and by the way this is the you know this is the dawn of the progressive era and progressives um played key role in the in this in the 1902 strike um and specifically lobbying for um reforms that were entirely around stabilizing industrial production the the the, the obsession of progressives was was always around how do we stabilize industrial production Certainly, part of that is making it more humane, but but really, ultimately, it was about um, stabilizing industrial production. So, temp, uh, progressives, um, the focus on like temperance is about like um, it threatens um, this productivity of workers. The progressives' um, preoccupation with police is about what what's a version of police we can build to impose an order that advances and sustains industrial production versus interrupting it or disrupting it, which is what they saw the coal and iron police. They, they weren't against policing. The progressives were against versions of policing that work against our efforts to industrial stability. Um, and, and so in all cases, the workers were, were seen as dupes to agitators. The workers were seen as operating against their own self-interests. They were depicted as um, backwards and, and, um, why don't they understand the sort of values of the sort of individual freedom and liberty? Uh, and, and I think in ways that that like maybe 
liberals or Democrats today misunderstand the sort of interest among working people in like, like right wing politics, which is like, what does it do for them? What does it serve? How does it serve their interests? And in, in 1902, you know, these were people that worked underground, that that understood how dangerous it was, that understood that their lives depended on the person they work with and the other people they work with, and and their lives depended on that nobody else would take their job, and their lives depended on on like social communities of support, and so these ideas, these sort of progressive ideas of sort of individual liberty, were not just um, foreign but bizarre. Like, why would I do that? Why would I give up this sort of dependency I have on other people? It's not a negative thing. And actually, it actually provides the conditions for which I can survive from day to day and continue to work. And 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 it was that sort of inability to understand um, the world from the perspective of the the lowest paid workers that 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 made it um, impossible really for there to be much sympathy um, for their plight. Uh, and and I think I think there's lessons there today about 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 organizing and and, and community development and this sort of the, the demonizing along political lines that that happens now. And I I don't again I don't I don't suspect that I'll be making any of those connections explicitly. My goal is not to explain the present um, by by telling a story about the past, but rather to to really sort of put the reader in this moment in time to understand like what was it like to be the, the the lowest paid worker in the most dangerous industry and, and find people call you lazy, find people call you unskilled, um, find people who claim to be your political allies um, selling you off um, if it served their interests. So this is, there's a lot, I think there's a lot that resonates between then and now. And and, and I, that's really why I, I'm interested in it. I think these are my interests in the present. And so I'm, I'm interested in how they played out in the past not as prescriptions for anything in the present, but um, but in the sense that like th these are unresolved struggles and questions um, in the present. It didn't emerge yesterday. Um, they're not novel problems that we confront, um, and, and we're really good at 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 coming up with the wrong answers. Is basically what the what the lesson is. <laughs> Well, David, this is just fascinating. And I can't wait to read the book when you're all said and done. Thanks for speaking with me today. You're welcome, Greg. It's been great to, great to be here. Thank you. And for the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts, more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society, and the Hagley Museum and Library, join us online. You can visit hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger. <laughs>